What's up? Welcome to Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. You, you, you love that song more than anyone, Nando. I mean, I love it. I love it. But you're always like grooving and moving like to little, it. That little piano. Yeah, it's good. Good stuff. It's a lot of fun. Um, we've got... I mean, as always, uh, a great show ahead for you guys. Uh, later, we're going to be talking to Seth Ackerman about why Biden's infrastructure proposal is not anything close to the New Deal, um, although Lib Dems would, liberal Democrats would make you think so. Um, and uh, I'm going to also talk about Biden's infrastructure bill from a different angle, and that's the uh, framing that we're now seeing from uh, corporatists uh, to essentially try to destroy some of the more beefy provisions in it. And then, Nando, mm-hmm. you're always coming correct with the foreign policy. Yeah, I think, the, I don't know, maybe the people can chime in on the chat, but I think the people like when I take a tour around the world, maybe do some foreign policy talk. I mean, I think they're bored of the yeah. U.S. news. They want uh, they want foreign people news. People are saying, people are saying, the people are saying, you know, very much. People, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be great. Um, so we'll get to all of that in just a minute. Um, but I, I do have a quick item I'd like to discuss for banter today. Um, and it has to do with the story that was published by Politico. In fact, Politico makes a lot of appearances on the show today, um, not for good reasons. But uh, there was something published about Representative Ocasio-Cortez donating um, about $5,000 to dozens of vulnerable Democrats in some of these like purple states. You know, these are Democrats who got elected in 2018 and they're considered vulnerable because they might have flipped um, you know, the seat in that district, uh, but they're very concerned that Republican attacks will destroy their, um, chances in getting reelected. So, um, political reports that, you know, AOC hands over, um, surprisingly, like without any real notice, um, $5,000 per Democrat vulnerable Democrat without going through the DCCC, which AOC, you know, has publicly had issues with. And um, these Democrats are like panicking over it because they're like, oh, my God, the Republicans are going to attack us if they see that AOC gave us money. And so they're trying to find ways to like reject it. They're trying to find ways to figure out how this happened. They're like, why didn't she just hide the fact that she wanted to donate to us by giving to the DCCC and then they would give us the money? Like they're so incredibly pathetic. Um, so I, I but, did not see the story yeah. when it broke. So I'm 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 learning about it. Okay, you know today. Let me give you five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars. That's nothing. That's it. That's, right? that's it. That's it. Just $5,000. But like the point of this, look, obviously this whole system of, of campaign finance is an issue, but that's not the reason why I'm bringing this up. I'm bringing this up because it perfectly highlights the issue with the Democratic Party and how they're constantly terrified of things that they shouldn't be terrified by. Um, so as, uh, you know, the political reported, so AOC's like contributions and an oversight at the campaign headquarters has instead raised awkward questions among her colleagues as some swing uh, district Democrats fret over whether to return her money before the GOP can turn it into an attack ad. I got news for you guys. The GOP is going to attack you regardless. 
Regardless, yeah. it doesn't matter if AOC gives you money or not. At least three Democrats have so far either declined the initial transfer or said they would return the money. Representatives Connor Lamb of Pennsylvania, Carolyn Berdu of uh, Georgia, and Alyssa S- uh, Slotkin of Michigan. And one Democratic consultant who should never be employed ever again uh, says this. The GOP has spent four years saying the frontliners are all socialists. Now they've got the receipts to prove it. Anyone telling themselves this won't be in campaign ads is in denial. So five five thousand dollars. I mean, that's like that's I mean, it. these campaigns. I mean, it's 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 nothing. But I mean, I think that the other the, the interesting thing about this story is that um, the D triple C is a organization that is just one of the most effective instruments for the Democratic Party establishment to discipline um, its members. It's just you know mm-hmm. they and and to um, and to essentially uh, punish. Uh, primary challengers, right? They, they'll flood, um, you know, they'll flood the coffers of any Democrat that is getting a primary from the left. Um, they'll also pick and choose winners in, in like, they'll, they'll influence whether, um, you know, some candidate or another gets money to challenge a Republican. Like they're just a huge instrument of power. So I think that AOC trying to, in a way, create a separate power node, um, because of her fundraising ability is kind of like an interesting thing in and of itself. Um, like whether Republicans are going to, you know, attack these Democrats for that is, is, you know, to be beside the point. I mean, like you said, Republicans attack Democrats for being socialists for whatever. Um, Mm -hmm, and mm $5,000 in the grand scheme of things is not a huge amount of money, but something that, you know, our guest today, Seth Ackerman talks and a lot about is, you know, he wrote a very famous piece in Jacobin called blueprint for new parties that you need to create these kind of outside power nodes. Um, and one of the things that's most important is funding. Um, so it is quite interesting if, if there is, if there were to be some sort of model, um, for, uh, you know, for, for the left, broadly speaking, to be able to disperse money to candidates it likes, um, you know, mm-hmm. as a, as a mean to, to challenge the power of organizations like the DCCC. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that actually makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't know if that's what AOC is intentionally engaging in. I, I know that AOC certainly has problems with the DCCC because um, after 2018, the DCCC said that it would ba- blacklist anyone um, mm. who helps uh, a, a Democratic a primary, uh, primary yeah. challenger. Right. And so uh, they have not been friendly to AOC or the Justice Democrats, which is part of the reason why she made the decision to avoid going through the DCCC and just uh, donate directly to these vulnerable Democrats. And be clear that these Democrats are certainly nowhere near, um, you know, what we would want in terms of, you know, people who are going to fight for champion um, socialist or uh, progressive policy proposals. Um, So there's also like that element of AOC, like, you know, um, she gets a lot of crap for uh, dividing the Democratic Party, uh, for publicly saying things that divide the Democratic Party. But, you know, behind the scenes, she's actually going out of her way to provide some funding for vulnerable Democrats who are not aligned with her ideology 
you know, at all. Um, and it's just, it's interesting to see how this is playing out because for everything that we hear from establishment Democrats regarding the, the need for unity, it's very clear that there are, um, many, you know, Democrats coming from these like moderate states or purple states who just, you know, they just, they, they don't care about unity. In fact, they're so terrified of be, about being attacked for being associated with AOC that they'll gladly divide the party if it'll benefit their own um, outcome, election outcome. U- unity so, goes in one direction. If a left, exactly. if, if someone held up a some important bill from the left, they would, I mean, just the, the, the entire onslaught of the power structure would be overwhelming. Like if... You know, if Bernie, for example, were the swing vote, like or the, the final vote on some bill that had 49 Democrats um, and it was like awful for some reason. And Bernie just like held out and killed the bill um, by withholding a single vote. Um, the the fury, the sound and the fury would be deafening. It would be just absolutely totally unified. Everything, every, you know, every politician would go insane. The media would back them up on everything. But like, obviously when cinema or mansion or whomever else, Warner, whoever else holds up an important, uh, bill from the right, that's kid gloves, you know, just like, well, we can't, you know, we yeah. can't piss them off too much. You know, we can't do what, you know, like we have to do, we have to give the concessions, you know, the thing. So it, the unity argument has always been, Bullshit and cynical, and it only goes in one direction. Exactly, exactly. So um, just wanted to share that little bit with you guys uh, before we get to the bulk of our show. Um, but before we do that, Nando, as always, I, I want to hear what's up with uh, Verso. Yes, of course. Well, it's a new month, and that means that you can join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, books, and merch for as long as you are a subscriber. Each member tier is 50% off for your first three months. The Conrad tier is only $20 a month, and if you join in April, you'll get four books, Planet on Fire, a manifesto for the age of environmental breakdown by Matthew Lawrence, brother of Joy Lawrence, and Laurie Laburn Langton. Triple alliteration there. Then we got Terminal Boredom by Izumi Suzuki, a short story collection translated from Japanese. Prophets of Deceit, a study of the techniques of the American agitator by Norbert Guterman and Leo Lowenthal. And then the updated paperback edition of Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life by Natasha Leonard. Cool. I love it. Very cool. Um, all right. So I'm going to go ahead and do my, I'm not really doing much of a decode today. I wanted to have more of a discussion with you, Nando, about Biden's infrastructure bill. Sure. Um, so let me present some of what I'm seeing lately. Um, and then I want to get your thoughts because there's a, a growing narrative regarding the necessity or the lack of necessity for uh, a more robust infrastructure bill. Now, to be clear, there are huge flaws with the infrastructure bill, which we will get into when we have a discussion with Seth Ackerman later. Um, but for now, I want to talk about what the plan of attack is from both the corporate media and from corporatists overall. Uh, and this narrative just really became apparent recently. So The new jobs report indicates that the economy added uh, nearly a million new jobs last month in March. So uh, the exact number is 916,000, which was the largest job gain since August. And so you see all the celebratory reports. um, But unfortunately, some are using these new jobs numbers to argue that 
hey, maybe we don't need uh, Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure bill, especially since his selling point is that it would create new jobs. Do we really need uh, this help in creating new jobs when we see that the economy is already doing really well? Now, let me give you the details on where the economy is at right now, but more importantly, also give you the reality of where the economy was at pre-pandemic. Now, the unemployment rate dropped uh, from 2.6% to 6% in February. Unemployment among African Americans and Latinos remained elevated at 9.6% and 7.9% respectively. And the gap with whites narrowed in March. Unemployment among Asian Americans rose to 6% from 5.1% in February. So clearly, uh, the unemployment rate did improve, uh, with some groups, but unfortunately it became worse with other groups. Um, but you know, the way that the jobs report is, uh, reported on, you Usually, uh, it doesn't really give you much of a nuanced look at what type of jobs these are. Are they full-time jobs? Are these people who are going to be underemployed? That's an important thing to keep in mind as we keep getting more and more of this data. Now, again, the jobs report, uh, as unnuanced as it is, um, was better uh, than most economists expected. And, you know, they did celebrate this. Uh, the unemployment rate, though, before the pandemic hit was 3.5%. And so for anyone who's trying to sell this as uh, a pre-coronavirus pandemic recovery is just flat out lying to you, because if you look at the unemployment rate now, it's at 6%. Right. And um, if you look at this fun graph put together by NPR with data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you'll see that uh, in February of 2020, the unemployment rate was at 3.5 percent. Um, at the height of the economic collapse related to the pandemic, it was 14.7 percent. And right now we're at 6 percent. But again, I, I need to reiterate that um, jobs numbers or the unemployment um, numbers are really, really deceptive when you uh, consider the unemployment question. And we'll get into that in a little more detail in just a minute. Now, there are still 8.4 million fewer payroll jobs in the United States now than there were before the coronavirus took hold a year ago. Um, so clearly, we have not experienced a full recovery. But the media is framing things in interesting ways um, when considering Biden's $2 trillion infrastructure proposal, uh, which, of course, we learned the details of this week. Um, so here's how it was framed on CNN. Economists are forecasting continued growth, even a boom going into the summer. And I wonder if the economy is set to boom, why the need to inject another $2 trillion in via this large infrastructure proposal? Well, well, thank you, Jim. Um, yes, these were encouraging numbers. Uh, it suggests that the the speed with which we have accelerated uh, the vaccination rollout and getting shots into arms and just the confident economic structure that the Biden administration has put in place has really uh, provided the confidence that the economy needs to start to get going again. But we still have more work to do. So I kept her answer in there um, just to give her uh, an opportunity to answer the question. But really, at the heart of what I want you to focus on was just the framing of that question. Well, it looks like the economy is improving. So why would we need an infrastructure bill? Everything was great before the coronavirus pandemic. So why would we need an infrastructure bill? That's really the growing narrative that you're likely to notice if you're paying any attention to corporate media. Let's move over to Politico, which had this headline recently. Biden's spending plans collide 
With a resurgent mm. U.S. economy, and of course the subheadline, the numbers signal the United States is well on its way toward revival, one that's widely expected to reach record levels of growth later this year. So again, the, um, th- the message that's being implied there is... Why would we need to spend $2 trillion on infrastructure? Why would we need to create government jobs when the economy is doing great? It's booming. It's roaring back. Everything is fine. Um, just to read a little from the piece that Politico put out, uh, they write that President Joe Biden is pitching his $2 trillion infrastructure proposal as the largest American, jo- American jobs investment since World War II, a plan that will put millions of people back to work as the country emerges from the coronavirus crisis. The economy, meanwhile, is showing signs of recovering on its own. On its own, guys. What are we doing? What is Biden doing? Uh, Further, they write that pitching trillions more in spending as necessary to bring back jobs could become a harder argument to make as the economy looks poised to get there on its own. And I want to be clear that this is not an op-ed in Politico. This is supposedly uh, a straight news story with no opinion injected, which is hilarious. Um, We're also hearing more about the need to target the spending, which you should also keep in mind because targeting usually means pushing for programs or provisions that are not universal, that are not permanent. And so for anyone who claims that Biden's proposal is, uh, you know, similar to the New Deal is honestly delusional. Um, but more importantly, if you do in the future, uh, especially in the second half of the proposal that hasn't come out yet, have programs that are universal and are permanent, well, this is the kind of talking point that you're likely to here. So Representative Kevin Brady said this, spending at a much smaller level, but better targeted would have better bang for the buck. We're wasting far too much of these dollars in areas that frankly aren't related to the recovery. So Nando, I want to bring you in uh, because there is this as oftentimes we see with capitalists, um, this conflict in in what their interests are. On one hand, you have uh, this need to Cut taxes, right? That's really at the heart of the argument here. They're not saying it outright, but they don't want tax increases to pay for this program. At the same time, though, if you care about commerce and if you want to protect the system of capitalism, how do you do that with a crumbling infrastructure, right? So obviously there's a giant conflict there. And it's, again, I'm not, I'm not talking about this as if Biden's proposal is fantastic. We're going to talk about its flaws, um, when we have Seth Ackerman on, but to attack this as something that's uh, completely unnecessary, I think is delusional. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the argument you're seeing from the business class, uh, you know, I was looking at the, the response from, you know, some of the, the trade groups and things like that is that, um, we like the infrastructure spending in theory. We like it. We, 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 we need, you know, better roads, bridges, all that stuff. Airports could be better. You know, everything, uh, that, that is in that bill we, we want and would, could use. The problem is that we don't want the corporate tax increase. We just don't want increases on our taxes to pay for it. And then it's like, well, well, then how do you pay for it? And what they say, and this is what like everyone made fun of Pete Buttigieg for is that you do kind of these like usage taxes, um, you know, the, the people who benefit from these infrastructure things should be the ones that pay for it. Like you do like some sort of gas mileage tax or, you know, to- toll booths and tax. things like that, Reg- a regressive yeah. tax that, that falls on, 
on on regular people. Um, this is what you know that Pete Buttigieg thing that came out was it like this week or the week before where he was like, "Yeah, I actually support the blah, 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 blah. and everyone like laughed at him because you know he's just the biggest nerd in the world. But yeah, um, it's that's that's what it is. It's like they want the benefits. They want the benefits of of the state to protect their business interests to help you know smooth the flows of commerce from from one side to the other but they don't want to pay for it they want other people to pay for it meaning us regular people and really that's been um the play for quite some time now right public investment in what these like executives and what these businesses get to take advantage of right um a lot of public investment especially in research and development which all of a sudden, you're seeing people like Christy Nome, uh, the governor of South Dakota, come out and be like, oh, there's funding here for research and development. Yeah, the taxpayer actually uh, pays for the research and development for a lot of private companies, including pharmaceutical yeah. companies, because private investors don't want to take on that risk. We as U.S. taxpayers tend to take on that risk. And then oftentimes, especially with pharmaceutical companies, they'll turn around and price gouge us. So that's how yeah. the system has been functioning. So, um, you know, you have the corporate, uh, the corporate is coming out and basically saying without saying it explicitly, why don't we just keep doing what we've been doing? <laughs> like, why don't we just have ordinary Americans pay for what we're going to take advantage of um, and what we need in order to ensure that business continues to run smoothly? Um, but the other thing I wanted to bring up is just this notion that all we need to do is get back to the pre-pandemic economy mm. as if the pre-pandemic economy was fantastic. And we all know, you know, that that, that that just wasn't the case. Uh, prior to the pandemic, um, the vast majority of Americans were in an incredibly precarious situation. Um, insane student loan debt, of course. You know, the Federal Reserve put out that study showing that nearly 50% of Americans couldn't afford a $400 emergency. That wasn't during COVID. That was before COVID. Um, you know, revolving debt, for instance, which is ma mostly made up of credit card debt, um, reached a high of $1.1 trillion dollars which means that people aren't able to make do with their wages and have to charge things that they need on credit cards. I mean, the economy prior to the pandemic was a disaster. And the fact that you have people with a serious face making this point on national television or writing this up in Politico and other publications is just absolutely ridiculous. And either shows a complete disconnect from the very people that they're actually trying to write about or more importantly, a disconnect between or, or, or more importantly, they just intentionally are being deceptive in their reporting here. Yeah. Um, but obviously, this infrastructure bill is necessary, but we want something um, a little more comprehensive, uh, something bolder that actually responds to the crisis of the moment. And that crisis isn't just about the coronavirus pandemic. No, and it's interesting, the, the media, like, as you pointed out, just how ingrained a lot of this idea like the zombie ideology is like they can't fathom the, the the possibility that the government the state can stimulate economic activity um they just that's just like economic activity is a thing that happens in kind of the natural world and the state is only a thing that can potentially hinder that natural state of things that is not that that's just that's deeply ingrained in the media that's that's taken as absolute fact um and so it's just it's 
eventually eventually something has like some eventually then we have to just like get past this you know like that the that that this is just kind of the natural order of things i mean it's just that's what we've been conditioned to believe in the last 30 or 40 years that 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 the economy is something separate from the state the state can only potentially hinder that yeah, i mean it's yeah I, that's that's certainly the talking point but when you look at the the policies and like how like again public money helps to support private industry you'll see that that's really never been the case. Um, And I I do want to also share some sound with you guys, uh, starting with uh, the Fox News narrative. Uh, I mentioned Christy Nome. She also uh, tried to lie to the American people about who would be impacted by tax increases. So let's take a look at that and debunk it real quick. Insanely high state and local taxes will become your new normal no matter where you live. Here with reaction, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem. Governor, is my analysis correct that in spite of saying that only the rich are going to pay and these evil corporations pay, I argue this will be paid for by the average American person. Doesn't matter how much you make. You're- That's right. You're exactly right, Sean. Every single family will pay the price for what Joe Biden's agenda is. He will drive up the cost of the food and their grocery bill. He will drive up the cost of their utilities, their gas prices, the cost of their cars, the clothes they dress their children in. Everything that they do each and every day uh, will be more expensive. Their budgets will be tighter because they'll be earning less. And it'll be directly because of these policies and these tax increases that Joe Biden is embracing and pushing through Congress. So none of that is going to happen. Um, Biden calls for a corporate tax increase, uh, honestly, not even enough of a corporate tax increase because he's going from 21 percent to 28 percent. Prior to Trump's tax cuts for the rich, the corporate tax rate was 35 percent. And when it comes to raising taxes on individuals, if you're making anything under $400,000, you will not be touched by the tax increases, at least how the proposal with how the proposal is um, put out uh, at the moment. Um, but it's just, it's hilarious because they're worried about their tax increases. They're worried about corporate tax increases. Um, and to fearmonger about this as if it's going to increase the price of food and clothing for children specifically, not for adults. Adult clothing will remain the same. Clothing for your children, though, that will go up in price somehow, somehow. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just so stupid. It's, it's beyond stupid. That, that people buy into these arguments and these narratives, but they're already going out there full force. And unfortunately, Joe Biden seems uh, ready and willing to uh, cave to the demands of people who are looking out for corporate interests. He says, debate is welcome. Compromise is inevitable. Changes in my plan are certain, but inaction is not an option. Hmm. Not good. Not a good place to start. <laughs> Very not good. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to think really about the the prospects of this bill. I mean, you know, in theory, we do need a massive trillions dollar uh, infrastructure bill. We we absolutely need that. Um, the size of it is going to be a huge um, indicator. I mean, I saw that Larry Summers uh, came out and said that he, the Joe Biden's plan looked about right to him. Remember, Larry Summers was hyperventilating over the um, coronavirus, the size of the coronavirus relief bill. Um, and he was instrumental in negotiating downward Obama's response to the financial crisis. So if Larry Summers is 
happy with the size of this infrastructure bill, it's a good indication that it's probably not big enough. You know, that right. you could probably go twice as big and, you know, get it to the point where Larry Summers is like hyperventilating. And that's probably the correct size of the infrastructure bill. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, um, you know, I just lost my train of thought. There was one other thing I wanted to bring up. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, we'll see how this all plays out. Um, but, you know, on one hand, you have uh, corporate interests who are trying to fight this as if it is the New Deal, and it's not. And then no. on the, you know, on the Democrat side, you have uh, this talking point about how this is like, this is going to save the country. This is all we need. This this is the answer we've been looking for. Um, but you know, it certainly does not go far enough in providing uh, the funding necessary to shift over to uh, green energy. And that's why climate activists have, uh, you know, pretty much uh, criticized that component of it while giving Biden credit for at least being a little more focused um, on climate change. And I also wanted to mention, you know, we had been giving him some credit for moving away from the deficit hawk nonsense. And it seems like this proposal is moving back in the direction of freaking out or panicking about the deficit. And that worries me. The interesting change politically to me, I mean, I do think that obviously the the deficit concerns are going to be are going to come out again. Um, They don't have the same level of oomph that they used to. The, Mm -hmm. The interesting thing politically for me is that they they do like use some rhetorical gestures towards this, but there is no hope that there's going to be any bipartisan uh, participation in this bill. I mean, they might say a couple things like kind of at the outset, but that was very much central to the Obama strategy was like, we need to get Republicans no matter what, like we need to peel off a few of them just to, you know, just to say we did. Um, and I think that 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 has broken a little bit, even amongst like kind of awful, annoying Democrats that they don't have any hope for um, Republicans getting on board. I mean, I'm seeing the reaction to John Boehner's uh, memoir or whatever the hell he he just published. Um, you know, people are like, see, they never really wanted to. And like, it's annoying because we knew that at the time, but um, it's it just contributes more to this idea that the Republicans are just not, they're not people that you can, that you can hope to peel off by, um, you know, appealing to their, the better angels of their nature or by giving them a few concessions here and there that it's just, you're just negotiating against yourself, um, at that point. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if Biden does, does really commit to that strategy of, of, of not really caring if any Republicans, um, get on board, then you start to see the seeds of, some sort of change politically in the United States. Yeah. We'll revisit this topic um, during our interview segment. But for now, why don't we take a break from Biden's infrastructure bill and talk a little bit about foreign policy? Oh, yes. Yes, Hannah, because, you know, Bolivia, our old friend, is back in the news. And we've covered Bolivia extensively on this show. But in case you need a quick recap, Back in October of 2019, Bolivia held an election in which Evo Morales, Bolivia's first ever indigenous president and a titan of the left-wing pink tide movement in Latin America, won pretty handily. However, the OAS claimed that there were irregularities in the vote, the U.S. agreed, of course, and the Bolivian military stepped in to remove Morales from power and a woman named Janine Añez assumed the presidency. 
Añez was a little-known far-right politician at the time who did not run in the election, but after the military's intervention, she was now the president. She then proceeded to lead a brutal repression of Morales' supporters, which led to several dozen deaths and took legal steps to bar leaders of Morales' party from running. While in power, Añez was accused of siding with security forces to shut down dissent. She came to power undemocratically, and within her first week, she oversaw two different massacres and offered immunity to the soldiers that carried out the massacres, and for the next year carried out a slew of human rights abuses. Yeah, you know, it's your classic right-wing military coup. And then the Bolivian people, through their large trade union movement, resisted the coup, called a series of general strikes, and forced Añez to hold new elections, which she promptly lost. And Luis Arce, a former Morales deputy, won and is now the president. Naturally, the new government wants justice for the perpetrators of the violent coup, and they arrested Janine Añez for her role in it. Four months ago, Janine Añez was president of Bolivia. Now she's under arrest, accused of staging a coup against her predecessor, Evo Morales. Shortly after being detained in the city of Trinidad, she was flown to the capital, La Paz, to face charges of terrorism, sedition, and conspiracy. Now, this seems pretty straightforward. You do a right-wing coup, you, you know, incite violence, you kill a bunch of people, and then you face justice for it. But not to the U.S. government and their mouthpieces in the press. Shortly after the news of Añez's arrest came out, Joe Biden's new Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, tweeted this, quote, We are deeply concerned by growing signs of anti-democratic behavior and politicization of the legal system in Bolivia. The Bolivian government should release detained former officials pending an independent and transparent inquiry into human rights and due process concerns. This came shortly after a stunning Washington Post editorial that said, quote, Mr. Arce had pledged to govern on the basis of unity and conciliation. Thus did Bolivia appear to exit a crisis that the leader of Mr. Arce's party, former President Evo Morales, precipitated by attempting to steal a fourth term through election fraud in 2019, leading to often violent demonstrations, the military's abandonment of the Morales-led government, nice euphemism there, and Mr. Morales's departure to exile. I say stunning, not because I don't think that the Washington Post editorial page is a mouthpiece for the U.S. State Department, which it is, but stunning because it was the Washington Post itself that first questioned the OAS narrative in the U.S. media that Evo Morales stole that election in 2019. In February of 2020, five months after the election and subsequent coup, the Washington Post did an independent analysis of the election numbers and the OAS report. They concluded, quote, our results were straightforward. There does not seem to be a statistically significant difference in the margin before and after the halt of the preliminary vote. Instead, it is highly likely that Morales surpassed the 10 percentage point margin in the first round. So yeah. You don't get a better example of the U.S. media being used as an instrument for state power. The journalists say one thing, the op-ed writers say another. But it also shows a stunning double standard. Here's that WAPO editorial again. Quote, Now, unfortunately, Mr. Arce appears to have reverted to a more one-sided and vengeful leadership style characteristic of Mr. Morales, who has turned to Bo- who's returned to Bolivia and still wields considerable power. Ooh. On March 13th, the government jailed Ms. Añez and two former members of her cabinet, threatening them with persecution and long-term prison terms. 
Warrants are out for several other former top officials. These actions follow an amnesty to Mr. for Mr. Morales' supporters accused of human rights violations while Mrs. Añez was in power, as well as the institution of de facto political loyalty tests for key government employees. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I just I like my ministers to, you know, agree with me politically. I, I don't need a team of rivals. Now, when Janine Añez took power, she did the exact same thing that the Washington Post is accusing Luis Arce of doing. Just a month ago, Evo Morales was Bolivia's head of state. He was forced out after being accused of rigging a presidential election. Now he's in exile in Argentina, and Bolivian police have formally accused him of promoting clashes between law enforcement and his supporters. On Twitter, Interior Minister Arturo Murillo taunted him with a picture of his arrest warrant. And Morales' successor, interim president Janine Añez, has previously said if he returns to Bolivia, he would have to face trial. If he wants to return to Bolivia, he knows he has to give answers to the country and he has to account for himself before the justice system and face the consequences. Hmm. Now, this assessment also was written in the pages of the Washington Post. They wrote, quote, The military-installed government charged Morales with sedition and terrorism. A European Union monitoring report noted that some 40 former electoral officials have been arrested and face criminal charges of sedition and subversion, and 35 people have died in the post-electoral conflict. But the Washington Post editorial page said nothing then, not a peep, no concern for democracy or human rights or due process in Bolivia when it was a right-wing coup government attacking the left. So what is going on here? Well, you would have thought that the new Biden administration would want to distance itself from Trump's foreign policy. But that's not really how U.S. foreign policy works. It is remarkably consistent no matter who is in power at any given moment. Let's go back to the new Secretary of State's Twitter feed. On April Fool's Day, he tweeted, quote, It's about holding up the international rules-based system that all of us have invested so much into over the last 75 years, and it has served our interests and our values very well. And of course, that tweet is laughable for those of us on the left, but Blinken was being honest. The U.S., in many ways, created the so-called international rules-based system. Here's according to a piece in The Nation from 2015. The U.S. is a country that, more than any other, nurtured the idea and wrote the rules for an international community of nations governed by the rule of law. At the first first Hague Peace Conference in 1899, the U.S. delegate Andrew Dixon White, the founder of Cornell University, pushed for the creation of a permanent court of arbitration and persuaded Andrew Carnegie to build the monumental peace palace at the Hague as its home. At the second Hague Conference in 1907, the Secretary of State Elihu Root urged that future international conflicts be resolved by a court of professional jurists, an idea first realized when the Permanent Court of International Justice was established in 1920. After World War II, the U.S. used its triumph to help create the United Nations, push for the adoption of its Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and ratify the Geneva Conventions for humanitarian treatment in war. If you throw in other American-backed initiatives like the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization, and the World Bank, you pretty much have the entire infrastructure of what we now casually call the international community. The thing is, the United States really pushed to create all that and then proceeded to immediately ignore it. The official U.S. policy for 75 years has been international rules-based system for thee, but not for me. And as Blinken said on that April Fool's tweet, it has served the U.S. very well. 
perhaps the clearest example of this U.S. policy towards the inter- is is the U.S. policy towards the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court was established in 2002 and was meant to be a tribunal that would bring justice to war criminals. But as soon as it was created, the United States undermined its authority. Quote, once the newly established International Criminal Court, or ICC, convened at The Hague in 2002, the Bush White House unsigned or de-signed the UN agreement creating the court and then mounted a sustained diplomatic effort to immunize U.S. military operations from its writ. This was an extraordinary abdication for the nation that had breathed the concept of an international tribunal into being. And this is still U.S. policy today. It remained throughout the administrations of Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. Here's Secretary of State Blinken again on his Twitter feed. He wrote, Today, POTUS removed sanctions previously imposed against the International Criminal Court personnel, the U.S. maintains our position to the ICC, sorry, the U.S. maintains our opposition to the ICC's attempts to exercise jurisdiction over personnel of non-states parties, such as the United States and Israel. He then followed up that tweet with, we believe a more effective approach to reform includes engagement to help the ICC achieve its core mission of accountability for atrocity crimes. In other words, we love the International Criminal Court. We're going to reverse the Trump policy of sanctioning the court's personnel. We believe that atrocities and crimes deserve accountability. Just don't dare come for us or Israel. It's really that brazen. They don't even bother to provide some sort of explanation. It's just, we're more powerful. Fuck you. Which brings us back to Bolivia. According to Cindy Forster in Jacobin, the woman who launched the criminal assault, uh, the criminal lawsuit against the heads of the coup government is Lydia Patti. She filed a case against several figures, among them a key leader of right-wing paramilitary initiatives, Luis Fernando Camacho, the sinister Arturo Murillo, the former head of the police, and Añez's former minister and personal assistant, Yerko Núñez. An indigenous Quechua woman and elected senator in the mass movement, mass government, Patty was among those who refused to resign with the coup. On March 15th, Patty spoke on public radio and television networks. There were tortures. Protesters had their fingers cut off. Women in the protests were manhandled by the soldiers. Their intimate parts groped, just like in colonial times. In the jail cells, our sisters were raped. She spoke of the coup regime's racism towards indigenous and peasant representatives in parliament, where they were told, you are our domestics and go home to your kitchens when she left office after her term in 2020, Patty chose to file the lawsuit as a private citizen against Añez. Contrast this with the United States, who is condemning the arrest of Añez and her cronies. According to the words of our Secretary of State, the U.S. is very concerned with the growing anti-democratic uh, behavior and politicization of the legal system in Bolivia. You know, we, we care about human rights and due process concerns. The United States is concerned with due process. This is coming from the government that jails more of its people than any other nation in the world, that often holds people in jail without trial for several years, that still operates Guantanamo Bay, which still holds 40 prisoners with no hope of ever being given a trial, let alone being released, a nation that carried out torture and still reserves the right to drone bomb anyone anywhere in the world for any reason at all. I could go on and on. When the United States talks about human rights, it is always, always, always a cynical ploy to discipline countries that don't adhere totally to the United States' will. Most of the time, the crime those countries actually commit is trying to use their wealth to aid their own poor rather than the American capitalist class. 
obviously everything that you outlined in your uh, segment today is correct. And, you know, it's interesting to see the commentary coming from Democrats about how how different Biden's administration is going to be from that of Barack Obama's. But if you really look at foreign policy and how it's not just something that impacts other countries, foreign policy has a very close tie to what we're experiencing at home with immigration, uh, with militarized uh, police departments across the country. If Biden's unwilling to change the course on U.S. foreign policy, then a lot of the fundamental issues that we have in this country will remain unchanged. Um, as you know, like the funding that we put into the military leads to um, an insane inventory of weaponry. And then when they have a surplus of that weaponry, it ends up getting um, sold to local police departments and that weaponry gets used against us. Uh, when it comes to the crisis at the border, that is uh, obviously something that's driven by uh, the type of meddling that you outlined, Nando, like, you know, overthrowing democratically elected leaders, uh, especially in Latin American countries, destabilizing these countries, and then pretending as if we're surprised when we have an influx of migrants seeking asylum in the United States. All of these things are tied together. And, you know, as you talk about the reaction to Anya's uh, getting arrested, I couldn't help but think about, you know, Venezuela and the fact that, um, you know, Maduro, like, I always wonder, how is it that Maduro just lets Juan Guaido, like, roam about yeah. freely? Yeah. You know, like, who does that? And I, maybe it's because he knows what the reaction from the United States would be if he took any action against Guaido. I don't know. But, like, for all of the um, fear-mongering we hear about people like Maduro— just, again, keep in mind that, like, Juan Guaido, who uh, has attempted multiple coups in his country, um, just walks Well, not just that, freely. calls himself the president and is recognized yeah. by several Western governments, <laughs> including the United States, as the official president of Venezuela. Like, the, the U.S. policy, both under Trump and Biden, is that Juan Guaido is the elected leader of Venezuela. That is official U.S. policy. The actual elected leader of Venezuela... Uh, Maduro allows this to just happen in his country. This allows, allows him to just traipse around and give press conferences and things like that. It's just, you know, the supposedly authoritarian, you know, uh, Maduro is just allowing a guy who calls himself the president and is recognized by, interna uh, by Western governments as the president to just live his life. It's, it's really quite and remarkable. And whether you're talking about Janine Añez or uh, Juan Guaido, you know, what stands out is this, you know, sense of entitlement and just how brazen they are. And so when there happens to be consequences for being the, you know, face and the leader of uh, a U.S.-backed coup, there's like shock and awe that there would be any consequences. But, you know, obviously, uh, considering the massacres that took place uh, due to Añez and that uh, coup, yeah, there's going to be consequences. It's shocking yeah. that they, they didn't expect that. Um, and I just wanted to quick, quickly, briefly mention the two things to also look at in regard to foreign policy moving forward. Well, one of the main things I would say is China, um, because the rhetoric and so far the actions of the Biden administration toward China remain unchanged from what we saw under the Trump administration. And mm -hmm. uh, as China continues to accumulate its power, as it, 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 it 
unquestionably will become uh, the most powerful country in the world, the United States is going to have its temper tantrum. And that's pretty terrifying because China is not uh, a country that we should be messing with, right? And if anything, if we're serious about doing something about climate control, uh, climate change, you're not going to be able to do that unilaterally. Yes, the United States uh, produces the most uh, CO2 emissions and obviously our actions matter, but we need to work with other countries, including China, in order to get that situation under control. We can't do it unilaterally. So using, um, you know, uh, antagonistic rhetoric toward China, I don't think is going to play out well. Um, and, you know, it's it's just amazing. On one hand, you have, you know, powerful people in this country saying we don't need to spend money on infrastructure. And then on the other hand, you have all the fear mongering about China <laughs> and how they're kicking our ass. Um, but we'll talk about that with Seth Ackerman in just a minute. And then Iran, uh, we're not going to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. It's just not going to happen uh, because Biden wants concessions from Iran before even considering rejoining the Iran nuclear deal. But we're the ones who pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. So why would we And then murdered their guy. And murdered their top general. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no big deal. So these are all things to keep in mind. Uh, The Biden administration's foreign policy so far has been pretty terrible. Um, It's just a continuation of what we've been experiencing for decades. And for anyone who thinks that doesn't matter for domestic policy, you're wrong. All of this stuff is intertwined. All of it is related. Um, So why don't we bring on our guest? uh, And that's, of course, Seth Ackerman. Um, who's going to talk to us a little bit about why uh, Joe Biden's infrastructure proposal is not the New Deal, despite all of the, um, you know, exaggerated language we've heard from some Democrats. Seth, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with um, why it is that Biden's proposal is nowhere near what we saw with the New Deal. Well, I think that the the biggest uh, distinction between what Biden is doing and what Roosevelt was doing or between their their approaches, um, and I think this is probably the most telling aspect of of the situation, is what you're hearing or not hearing from business, from the Chamber of Commerce, from the National Association of Manufacturers or, you know, the the business world generally. The Republicans, of course, are screaming about uh, about this bill and, you know, calling it all kinds of names. Um, that's their job, but their their business allies are. For one thing, it's important to remember that um, you know, unlike most, much or most of of uh, the programs of the New Deal that we that we remember today, uh, an infrastructure plan along more or less along the lines that Biden is proposing has been at the top of the wish list of uh, the Chamber of Commerce. I mean, also of uh, of the the labor movement too. It's it's an area of like very wide. Um, consensus in American politics among American interest groups, and um, and so what you have is a situation where where Biden is finally um, uh, taking the opportunity of the kind of void left by the, the the destruction in Trump's wake politically to be able to push through something that was always considered to be a kind of political low hanging fruit because everybody was for infrastructure, nobody was against infrastructure. And it was just a kind of, you know, it was political dysfunction that was uh, that was keeping it from happening. So this is something that business wanted. Uh, that doesn't necessarily make it, you know, reactionary because it also has a lot of things in it that uh, are going to be good for workers. But it de- all depends on the details, which we don't have yet. Um, everything that I just said, you know, differs pretty markedly from Roosevelt, who was, you know, who famously, uh, number one, was detested by 
the National Association of Manufacturers at the time, and he he famously said that he welcomed their hatred. That's not at all Biden's approach. Uh, Biden, you know, the other day he said, uh, "This isn't socialism. I believe in American capitalism." And um, you know, I, I think that it's important to, to sort of keep a balanced uh, perspective. Uh, on the one hand, this is a, I think a, a much more aggressive approach to um, you know to kind of traditional liberal policy than we saw from Obama. Um, and then at the same time, it's it's not like the New Deal uh, because of the nature of who's lining up for and against it. Uh, Biden mm. is really pushing through um, a, the measures that have uh, really some of the broadest support of anything that you could find um, on the democratic policy agenda. Yeah, it's, you know, people don't realize uh, or people don't remember. Or it's just not really talked about that much. But the reaction to Roosevelt, I mean, there was something called the business plot, like a literal coup attempt from several business leaders and some members of the military to remove Roosevelt through a military coup and install some sort of fascist uh uh, government and it was and it was it was foibled. Um, you wrote in in a Substack piece uh, that I that I found very provocative and good, where that um, you know while a lot of liberals are comparing uh, Biden to FDR and LBJ, um, and apparently Biden likes that comparison. That the closest historical parallel to the Biden Schumer Pelosi plan is the Trump McConnell Pelosi COVID package of 2022, also known as the CARES package that. Biden, the the man he should compare himself to is not FDR or LBJ, but rather one Donald J. Trump. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, you know, the it's it's very easy to forget now. Among for you know, among other things, it's easy to forget every, anything that happened six months ago because there's been such a like a fire hose of news over the last few years. But you know, just a just a year ago, something happened which probably would be would have been hard for anybody to believe if they'd been told about it um, you know, a few years previously, which was that a Republican president uh, signed into law a, a bill that sent out checks for free to every household, whether they were working or not, um, plus a lot of other stuff that probably w- would have been hard to believe a Republican would be supporting. Um, and obviously that was because of an emergency situation. The pandemic was something that was different from anything that we'd experienced before. And, uh, but the, the fact that um, in that emergency situation, uh, a, you know, political consensus existed to push through uh, a, a policy like that, it really, I think, broke down a lot of barriers and taboos um, that have allowed Biden to kind of um, push, you know, push a, what, it, what ultimately is, is in the end, a very similar kind of policy. Um, it's basically, it's kind of like, the CARES Act only more so. You see a lot of, in fact, you see a lot of continuity in the sense that, um, you know, Trump was politically incapable of actually doing it. But uh, if there was one real actual policy, as opposed to just, you know, like uh, Twitter theatrics that that Trump, uh, you know, always was promising that he wanted to do and that he was going to do, which but he never did, was infrastructure. Um, and then the one thing that he ended up doing as a big policy measure, other than his tax bill, uh, was a big uh, emergency cash assistance plan. And what you're seeing in, initially from the Biden administration is a big infrastructure bill and a big cash assistance uh, emergency program. So in that sense, it's continuity. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, uh, there is 
this change in the atmosphere, a change in the in the set of things that um, Democratic senators seem to be willing to swallow, uh, that Democratic the Democratic policy world seems willing to entertain. And um, I think it's good to be skeptical uh, of how much that those noises are actually going to be uh, realized. But my sense is that something something has changed. It's just not clear exactly what it is yet. What it isn't is is another new deal. Right. And and one of the things that stands out to me, at least based on what we know so far, things can change. This is supposedly, you know, the first part of of Biden's proposal. The second part will focus on, um, you know, the child uh, tax credit, for instance, which uh, he was able to pass uh, through the last relief plan. Um, but there's really no talk of anything permanent. Right. Because when you talk about a transformative policy, you're talking about something that um, like fundamentally changes how how money is redistributed. And in this case, as far as we know, nothing is really uh, permanent here. Um, it, it's just when you say continuation, what I think of is, yeah, it's another situation where we're uh, throwing money at something, which is good. That's not to minimize the, the positive provisions uh, included here, but really there's nothing that that's going to be lasting in terms of, um, you know, a transformative program, uh, making the child tax credits permanent. Uh, he might propose that in the second part of his uh, legislation, but I'm also a little concerned about how this is going to be put out because is this going to be two different bills? And if that's the case, will, will there be enough political capital um, to pass both of them. Um, and I'm worried that by decoupling, you know, the child tax credit and all of those other really important programs, what will end up happening is uh, the infrastructure part might pass because of business interests. But uh, the other provisions that I would like to see passed uh, wouldn't actually make it. I don't know. But we have to see how it's going to be proposed. Is it going to be one robust bill or two separate bills? Yeah, I think that's I think that's that's right, and I think that uh, you know that so far Biden's approach has been pretty clearly to entertain um, ideas, you know, from that from his campaign policy agenda, which was you know kind of a copy and paste of uh, of recent Democratic Party policy world uh, ideas, and he, he he's been talking up those ideas, but then legislatively he's you know, quite ruthlessly pragmatic, and he's willing to jettison anything. Uh, you know, he starts at the bottom of the list uh, in terms of how easy uh, it is to pass a, a given measure, how much support or how little support a measure has, and he just starts chopping things off until he gets uh, until he gets to a, a level of support that he thinks he can get, or that he thinks that can pass the bill. Um, so at the moment, you know, so in, in other words, early days of the administration, there was a lot of talk about how Biden was going to be passing, you know, uh, there's going to be a massive child care program. And there was uh, in the infrastructure bill, there was going to be a $15 minimum wage in the COVID assistance plan. Uh, certainly with the minimum wage, I mean, it's not just that Biden in the end got rid of it, but he seemed pretty, um, pretty quite prepared uh to get rid of it without a lot of fuss, you know, I, he seemed yep. to be kind of expecting that he would that he would end up doing that. Um, uh, so I think that a, that a fair number of these um, good-sounding policies that are being mooted in the press are probably going to end up being bargaining chips. So so that you know by by uh, abandoning one or the other, he can show that he has 
compromised and then, you know, he can get something passed. Maybe that's something that Joe Manchin needs to see, you know, and he needs a headline that says, you know, the Biden has, has abandoned this or that liberal policy. And then he can, that gives him permission to vote for it. Something like that. Yeah. I want to ask you about this, um, line that has come out in the wake of the COVID relief package that it cuts child poverty in half. Um, this was something that the liberal commentators were very excited about. Um, in your, uh, in your analysis of the plan, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, it does, it does achieve some, you know, it it does achieve child, it, it does achieve the, the reduction in poverty, um, for children, but you point out that it's, it's very similar to the amount, um, that it was, that was reduced in the Trump cares package, um, can you explain what's going on with this with this line? What 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 do the numbers say, and what do you make of this kind of, um, I guess, selling effort that it cuts child, child poverty in half? It was it was a fantastic um, marketing move, um, and it was very clearly. I mean, this is not necessarily a bad thing if you want to pass legislation, or if you want to, even if you just want to advertise that you passed legislation. You know, that's the sort of thing you would do. But um, basically, on the day of uh, Biden signing the bill, there was a spate of headlines pointing out, um, I guess the news hook was there was an analysis that was done by a policy institute at Columbia that found that the bill um, was going to cut child poverty in half in 2021. So, I mean, what what poverty means in policy terms, technically, is the number of people who have an income below some uh, threshold. So because the CARES Act is going to be mailing out a lot of checks to people, um, in 2021, in a single year, there's going to be a fair number of people whose incomes are going to go up above that threshold, and so that represents a you know reduction in child po- in the child poverty rate of apparently about one half. But if you you know scroll back through the through the archives of the the same policy institute actually, and you look at their analysis that they did of the CARES Act of Trump's bill uh, a year earlier. They also analyzed it for to figure out how many people were going to be um, lifted above the poverty line, and it was basically about the same. The same same percentage point reduction in the number of poor people uh, was going to result from the, the Trump CARES Act. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, it's it, it was it was it was a selling effort. I mean, the fact that the, that report came out the day that Biden signed the bill and that he he left on a on a tour to sort of promote it and hype it. Um, you know, it's an indication that this is what they thought was going to be a, a successful way of selling the bill or a successful way of of ginning up um, enthusiasm for it. And it's great to reduce child poverty, even if it is just for a year. But one really you really got uh, it was very easy to get a misleading impression from, you know, like the headlines or the, Twitter, the tweets or whatever, um, if you weren't paying close attention and to think that that. Biden had just signed a bill that was going to cut child poverty in half in the sense that, you know, when we talk about um, war on poverty programs or New Deal programs like Social Security, they had lasting, you know, permanent um, effects in, in reducing the rate of elderly poverty in the case of Social Security or, um, you know, uh, child poverty in the case of some of the great society programs. Those were reductions in, in poverty that, you know, were, were, weren't just one year, they were permanent. Uh, and that's the impression that you got from a lot of the headlines with Biden's bill. Now, you know, if you if you talk to the people who were who were hyping that stuff, they would say that what makes Biden's um, 
feel different or what um, makes it justified to to talk up that aspect of it is the fact that there is this um, there is a proposal that Biden has embraced to make the child tax credit permanent. So in other words, this is supposed to be sort of like a, an appetizer, uh, you know, and the main course is going to be a bill that's going to come later. That's the main meal, which is making the thing permanent. And that actually would be like a, a great society type of um, now there's now, I mean, you know, Biden has publicly uh, very firmly embraced the idea of a permanent child tax credit. But since then, you know, he's, he and his team have been um, going through the numbers and figuring out how this is going to mesh with their infrastructure bill and talking to senators and all the rest of it. And so now you're hearing noises about possibly, for example, having the the child benefit um, be made <clears throat> be made to continue, but to sunset after five years. So that would be that would be uh, right after the next presidential election. So what that means is, you know, if Biden were to lose the election, then there would be no, then it would be, that would be the end of the, the child benefit. On the other hand, you know, you could argue that that then is a, is a great um, motivator at the polls. You can get people to come, come out to vote for you because you've got this popular policy. But in any case, um, you know, it, it, it's clear from the pattern of Biden's actions, I think, that he has identified the things uh, that are have very wide consensus support, and the things that have only the support of the sort of liberals who have are the types who have been hyping this like child poverty statistic. And he, whenever there's any kind of a conflict between the two, he is very ready to uh, get rid of the the stuff that only appeals to liberals and to focus on the stuff that has a lot of broad-based support, including from business Republicans and so on. Yeah, and that's something to be concerned about, um, especially because, it, you know, there's the child uh, tax credit, which, you know, is popular and uh, should pass. Uh, and then there's also, you know, the language coming from the Biden administration in regard to the PRO Act, which has business interests, for obvious reasons, uh, panicking about it. And so I came across this exchange on CNBC that um, I wanted to share with you guys and uh, get your reaction to it, uh, Seth, because uh, it's not just about the PRO Act. It's the tax increases that are proposed as part of this infrastructure bill in addition to the PRO Act. And just listen to the language here. Uh, by uh, Douglas Holtz Eakin, who's uh, from the think tank American Action Forum. If you look at the composition, if you were to raise the taxes they're raising, the corporate rate, global minimum tax, a book uh, income tax, and spend that really, really carefully on core R&D, uh, core infrastructure, uh, you might break even, uh, but I doubt it. Um, if you water it down with the sort of social programs they've got in there, $400 billion expansion of Medicaid, Medicare, and a whole, whole bunch of other things, and then toss in this uh, Protecting uh, Right to Organize Pro Act, which is a, an extraordinarily anti-growth provision, on balance, this is, this is bad for economic growth, bad for the economy. Explain, explain that last piece. Why do you say that? So the, the Pro Act um, would uh, preempt right to work laws in 27 states. Uh, it would change the classification of workers and independent contractors, much like California has with its ABC uh, legislation. Uh, it would embrace the joint employer standard that would allow uh, essentially the end of the franchise model in the United States. So uh, it, would, it would get rid of the prohibition on secondary boycotts and lead to a lot of uh, very disruptive disruption in uh, the flow of goods and services. So uh, there's none of that that is about creating jobs or uh, great. Uh, creating greater productivity. So I have real concerns about the 
the economic policy that's in this uh, proposal. So I wanted to get your reaction um, to his allegations there, Seth. Well, I mean, that's, you know, Douglas Polsekin is sort of like the, the, the reality-based economist who works for the Republican Party. Um, there may be one or two other ones. Uh, and so he, it's his job to, you know, to go on CNBC and, um, and badmouth democratic economic policy generally. Um, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that even he, you know, there was, a, there was a piece in the Washington Post the other day by Paul Waldman where he made a point that, you know, I, I thought made a lot of sense, resonated with me, which is that the, the opposition from the Republicans or Republican world to Biden's infrastructure plan. And, and also this was the same as the same thing goes for the uh, emergency uh, COVID package. Um, they've been opposing it. You know, not a single Republican voted for these things or, or will vote for the infrastructure bill most likely. Uh, and yet there is a notable lack. This is what I was thinking when I saw that clip you just uh, aired. I, you know, there's a, there's a lack of uh, passion and conviction, strangely enough, um, that is kind of eerie. Uh, it's it's not a lot. It's 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 quite different from what you saw in like the Obama years when the Tea Party was uh, running rampant, and they you know they they said all this stuff, but they also seemed to really believe it, and they they also seemed to think that they could get other people to believe it too. Um, and this time, you know, there's a kind of diffidence about the opposition. You know, Holtz Eakin there was, you know, you're saying, well, if you if you get rid of a few of these parts of the infrastructure bill, you might be able to pay for, you know, you might be able to get more productivity enough sufficiently to pay for the, the, the cost of the investment. But then there's all these other social programs that we don't like. It's not exactly a stirring call to, you know, uh, to insurrection against a socialist tyranny. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's, it's what's remarkable to me so far has been how difficult the Republicans have seemed to find find it, f figuring out how to oppose the stuff that Biden's doing. And, you know, I think this is related to what I said a, a bit earlier, which is that Biden's approach has been to uh, zero in laser-like on those aspects of his uh, agenda that have the least opposition, the most broad-based support, and be willing to sort of trim everything else. And, you know, I think that it's to the credit of that strategy that, um, in part, there's other aspects of there's other factors also but there's that's a big that's part of the reason why you see such a republicans having such a difficult time figuring out how they're going to portray this as the as the end of civilization as we know it. so um you know if there's one if there's one aspect of biden's administration so far that is a little bit like the new deal it's the it's the sense of disarray that you get from the opposition um mm. that's you know, disarray and incoherence um, and you know, and sort of like a, a dawning sense um, of dread, of dread that you know, a realization that that of just how uh, unpopular they are, or just how how few things they have to offer that are popular. Um, yeah. So that's you know, that to me is um, is the is the thing that that resembles it, and that's what I was reminded of when I was listening to Old Eakin. Can I yeah, just quickly I, I, jump in on that? Because oh, sorry, Nando. I, I just want to make no, a no, quick point. I, I think I think you're right, um, and I wonder how much of Trump's success in using you know populist framing uh, in campaigning has uh, basically 
pushed Republicans up against a wall. You know, like they know that that messaging resonated with Republican voters and, you know, working class people. And so, you know, it's really difficult to undo that um, because precisely what you mentioned, I mean, they don't really have any other solutions or anything else to offer people. So it's difficult to come out against something um, that would improve people's lives. I mean, clearly it doesn't go as far as we'd like, but um, it would improve people's lives considerably from what they're experiencing right now. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I think that it's important to remember that, you know, most people don't pay very close attention to politics and especially not to the policy, you know, sides of, side of politics. But what they do and what they really do notice, uh, however little they pay attention, uh, is when the government sends them a check. And so, you know, Trump sent them a check. I say Trump partly because, you know, that's how he wanted it to be portrayed. He wanted everyone to know that this was not just the government, but it was Donald Trump personally who was sending these checks. Everybody knew that. I mean, even the people who have the least knowledge and the least interest in politics at least know that Donald Trump is a Republican and that Donald Trump sent them this check. So Mm -hmm. the whole Republican um, approach to policy, which is basically to say, the, the Democrats are bad because they want to send checks to people for nothing um, has really hit uh, hit the skids. I mean, because you're talking about um, a contradiction that is visible to almost everybody, not just just like a small number of people who pay really close attention to politics. So, I mean, remember the Tea Party, the Tea Party, which injected so much energy into the Republican uh, into, Repu- into the Republican Party, was all about, you know, I don't want, at the beginning, especially, it was, I don't want to pay for, you know, my neighbor who took out a mortgage that was too big. I don't want to pay for this. I don't want to pay for that. Um, and it, it, how do you, how do you get the toothpaste back in the tube after that? I mean, I, I agree with you. I think that's going to, that's a real problem for them. Yeah. You know, you know, Corey Robin always makes the point that um, the right or conservatism, conservatism or whatever you want to call it, is most energetic when it's kind of in opposition to sort of some hegemonic um, alternative. Uh, I'm like reminded of like toward the end of, of the 1970s, like, you know, the, the, the Carter administration, which was kind of like the end of like the New Deal era in a way, um, like the liberal response to the conservative movement's um, energy was, like you said, in in the case of the business response to the New Deal and the Republican response now, just kind of weak or incoherent or kind of cut off guard. Um, and 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 that seems to me like that's the moment that we're entering in now, where um, the the sort of tenets of the right have been so dominant for for so long, and they're now. They just don't know. They don't have the energy. They they just they've lost the muscles, so to speak. Um, so what what kind of what kind of phase are we entering? Because it doesn't. It it also is not like some left wing kind of um, you know ascendancy that that we would like. But what 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 are we entering? I mean, it's a good question. I think that the fact that it's so difficult to to answer or even really to have us like a a sense of what the possibilities are is, you know, is a testament to how um, fluid the moment is. And I, again, I think this is because uh, four years of Trump, and then if you want to go deeper than that, not just four years of Trump, but also then the the, the years, the Obama years of um, where McConnell took Republican obstruction to, to, to 100%, so that it became sort of um, the normal processes of government uh, in, in a sense, kind of came to a halt 
uh, and every whatever governing happened was all sort of like emergency measures or you know reconciliation or you know and then in the end not very much. All of those things ended up kind of um, destroying what existed the existing landscape of, of politics in the sense of like the, the the norms and the expectations of how how things work and how um, and and you know what you do in a certain situation. And of course, Trump was you know the biggest norm destroyer. And then by the end of that, by the end of that whole experience. Uh, there's not anything really left of like a familiar landmarks where you know what you know what the political response to this or that is going to be or or how um, you, you know, where you can sort of anticipate how a, an administration is going to go about pursuing their agenda. It's kind of like a free for all uh, right now, and that I think gives Biden a lot of um, a lot of power to shape you know uh, how things are going to happen over the next few years because there's a kind of a void. Of expectations, um, but I do think that you know one of one of the things that I think is is at work here in the in the problems that Republicans have is that um, you know you, you mentioned Corey Robbins' thesis about uh, the right being energized by uh, an ascendant left, and from the right point of view, over the last you know especially with Trump, um, for the last four years, the they they have gotten that kind of energy from the perception or from from the depiction of uh, the left as being, you know, this uh, cancel culture entity that's trying to um, that's trying to evict any kind of conservatism or traditionalism uh, from from public life, uh, and that's been the focus of of their um, of the the energy they've gotten in the sense of of seeing a threat and responding to the threat, and it was effective uh, for Trump. It got him elected. It got him sort of sustained as as something where he had a, a hardcore fan base, and you know by getting Trump elected in the White House, it uh, ultimately did allow Republicans to at least get their tax cut. You know, so it, it sort of kind of worked for all for all sides, all parties uh, within the Republican side of things in the Republican world. But um, but then there's sort of, there's sort of like a jujitsu thing that a boomerang that came back on them, which was that uh, the Democrats ended up nominating a guy who is like the most, the least alarming uh, figure from the point of view of somebody who's really uh, afraid of woke woke culture and cancel culture and all the rest of it, just out of pure, you know, affect and also his, his record, Biden's record as a, as a moderate. Um, so it's hard to, so that sort of like kills the energy that they used to get from Obama or from, AOC or whatever. Um, and meanwhile, Biden is using that room for maneuver to push through what is in substance, um, actually probably a, a much more expansive agenda so far than Obama uh, was was pushing. Uh, but you can't, it's hard to get the Republican base to get excited about that because you've been, um, you, they've been completely distracted by this stuff about, you know, about um, this culture war stuff. Uh, and the culture war stuff can work but it doesn't seem to work with Biden in the White House as the, as the face of the enemy. Um, mm. So that, I think, is another aspect of, of what's making it hard for them to be a, an effective opposition. I want to ask very quickly about the PRO Act, you know, after seeing that clip. Uh, I did find it kind of, in a way, remarkable that Biden came out and uh, mentioned something about the workers in, in Bessemer and then said that, he, if, you know, that we need to pass the PRO Act and that he would sign it. If it came across the desk, I find it notable that he did not say that about Medicare for all. If Medicare for all, he said if it came across his desk for whatever reason, he would veto it. 
Um, what do you make of that? What, what's driving it and, and how transformative would the PRO Act be or not be? My sense from listening to people who you know know a lot about labor policy is that the PRO Act would be would is that would be transformative or at least it would be the best uh, it's the it's the best chance of having a transformative um, change in the labor law environment for unions uh, of anything that we've seen in, in a long time. It goes further than the than the Employee Free Choice Act, which was the sort of the version the, the last version of uh, labor's wish list. But I mean, this is part of the kind of the choreography of um, of Democratic Party politics generally. I mean, uh, it's still the case that um, a Democratic, pres Democratic presidential candidate in order to get elected has to verbally embrace these kinds of core agenda items uh, for the labor movement. Um, but the, you know, the catch, of course, and, and the, I think in my opinion, one of the reasons why they're, they're, they have no trouble embracing this stuff is that traditionally there has been this thing called the filibuster that's, that's there that um, makes it so that they can credibly turn to the unions and say, well, my hands are tied. I can't pass this because I can't get you know, uh, 10 Republican votes in the Senate or whatever. Um, so, you know, Joe, Joe Biden is a longtime supporter of the filibuster. Uh, obviously, there's a debate right now going on about, about what um, what the future of the filibuster is going to be. Uh, people often talk about the long record of the filibusters used by uh, by segregationists, which is, of course, uh, which, is a, which is true. It's, it's a big part of the history of the filibuster. But if there's, you know, if there's one other policy area that always was um, one of the bastions of the use of the filibuster, even back in the era when filibusters were pretty uncommon, when they did happen, they happened either over civil rights or the other one was labor policy. That was the only that was the only other thing that um, was sort of, made, I guess, by the norms of politics in the fifties, sixties, seventies, was seen as acceptable for. Um, to, to, to use a filibuster to block uh, because, you know, for obvious reasons, because both civil rights and uh, labor policy, uh, as, as you alluded to with the PRO Act in this case, labor policy has the potential to uh, have transformative effects on the structure of power in the country. So that's why the filibuster was always seen, even when filibuster was seen as something to be used sparingly, it, labor, you know, preventing uh, liberal labor reform was considered one of the acceptable areas for, for to use the filibuster. Um, so you can see what the effect that that's had with, on the Democratic Party. Uh, Democratic presidents have been able to um, win election promising that they were going to support up and down, right and left, you know, wall to wall, everything that uh, the, the unions are asking for when it comes to labor policy, knowing that it is inevitable that there's no way that those things are going to be able to pass uh, unless the Democrats, on the very rare occasions that they do, have you know at least 60 votes in the Senate plus control of the House plus control of the White House. And the interesting thing is that they actually did manage to get that um, in uh, in the first in Obama's first term, and it was like the dog that caught the bus. You know, they um, they they had the 60 <laughs> votes. And then um, very quickly, at least one Democrat in the Senate ha who had promised to support the Employee Free Choice Act had to be the one to come out and say, "Oh, sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not going to vote for it." And that was, I mean, there were a few who were making noises, but it was Blanche Lincoln in the end from Arkansas who ended up playing that role. Um, and so, you know, that's I, I just I 
I think that um, it's great to talk about the PRO Act and all the, the good things that it would do. But, you know, in my opinion, it's been it's been pretty dead on arrival from the beginning or even before arrival. Yeah, you make you make a really good point about, you know, legislative process and, and how the filibuster uh, could and very likely will uh, defeat the PRO Act. Um, but related to that, just to kind of connect the dots um, in regard to labor power and what's different today versus um, the lead up uh, to the New Deal. I want to share just a quick snippet of uh, a Smithsonian documentary called America in Color, uh, where they talk about the aftermath of the uh, Great Depression and the type of labor activity that took place as, uh, you know, people were getting laid off across the country. Uh, this specifically has to do uh, with Ford laying off its workers and the reaction and response from those workers. There's a point to this video, which I'll explain once we come back from it. But let's take a quick look. But by 1932, sales are at rock bottom. And Ford has lost $75 million. He lays off two-thirds of his workforce. In response, the laid-off workers demand that Ford rehire them. On March 7th, 5,000 gather in Detroit and make their way to the Ford plant in Dearborn. The only surviving footage of that fateful day was filmed by the Detroit Unemployed Council. city limits, violence erupts. Dearborn police spray tear gas and attack the men with clubs. The protesters fight back with anything they can. Then Ford's private security gets the nod and opens fire. laid-off workers die that day. Eighty thousand mourners join the funeral procession. The relationship between labor and management will remain contentious. And it certainly did remain contentious. Uh, in fact, th that type of activity uh, is what pushed uh, Roosevelt to, uh, you know, move toward the Green New Deal. Uh, to pass the New Deal, not the Green New Deal. Sorry about that. Um, but, you know, obviously there's um, a big difference uh, between what we're experiencing today and uh, noticeably conversations about um, organizing and labor power are kind of missing from uh, the discussion. You know, all of the focus tends to be on electoral politics. And so, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on that and how we can, um, you know, even with the tumultuous situation with the legislative filibuster and how it's going to affect uh, the PRO Act, how can we, um, you know, have discussions about organizing and increasing labor power uh, and and using that as more of a tactic uh, to push uh, the White House to get what we want? Because just relying on electoral politics clearly is not enough. Well, I think that you're right that um, the kinds of tactic or, you know, the Activity, organizing activity uh, in the workplace uh, with the, the capital labor, you know, um, duo in that kind of fight uh, has a, a structural uh, power to it that um, that most other forms of activism 
uh, rarely achieved just because of the the key position that uh, workers are in uh, when it comes to um, in the workplace because that's what it's called it's the workplace and they do the work so if they decide that they're not going to do it um, then everything grinds to a halt uh, including you know the flow of profits to business and a lot of other things um, stop as well uh, so the the potential there of course is is enormous and I think it's um, most of the stuff that we would like to see happen at least the most the more ambitious parts of it are not going to happen un unless and until um, there's a lot more activity along the lines of what we saw in that video, which is an amazing footage. I'd never seen that stuff before. Um, so, but in, in terms of like how you get to that point, um, I don't think that there's a magic bullet. Um, you know, th this is the kind of thing that uh, organizers, there's a very small number, but very important number of uh, people who day in and day out um, think about these issues and act on them in their own workplaces as well as within a larger movement, they have been, you know, they they talk about and think about this stuff all the time. Um, you can, you know, look at what uh, people at, around Labor Notes, the organization Labor Notes, which is a sort of a, a militant, um, more left-wing uh, organizing tendency within the labor movement. Uh, with the stuff that they talk about at their conferences or in their publications, um, it's really about um, stuff that that's not about, you know, mastering knowledge of what's going on in Washington or, or like uh, you know reading the New York Times every day it's about talking to your coworkers it's about like forming relationships with people uh, immediately around you um, so that you have a kind of a, a network of people who can talk about uh, their their grievances and uh, you know develop a, a sense of self-confidence that they can uh, challenge the boss and do things that are disruptive and do things that are uh, potentially risky um, Things that you're not supposed to do uh, that requires, um, you know, building relationships of trust with other people, and uh, that you know, those are conversations and actions that have to go on at the micro scale, you know, within within your workplace, um, and, or in your neighborhood or wherever. Uh, so I don't have mm -hmm. a I don't have a magic bullet solution to that, but I do agree that those kinds of relationships and leading to that potential kind of um, uh, contestation, that's the sort of thing really almost exclusively that could lead to the, the really transformative stuff that, that we're, we're unlikely to see from a Biden administration. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, with this effort to unionize in Bessemer, what really stood out was um, how Amazon went out of its way to ensure that its fulfillment center workers um, don't speak to one another. Like they would literally put obstacles in place uh, to prevent them from um, gathering together, having conversations about the workplace. Um, and so that tells you everything you need to know about what, you know, <laughs> corporate interests uh, look to do just to uh, further atomize people and prevent any type of uh, collective action. Um, so go ahead, Nando. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's all that's all right. I mean, I think maybe to wrap it up, I, 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 I wanted to ask about the Biden framing of the infrastructure bill. Um, one of the selling points, one of the marketing uh, points for it is that we need this if we're going to compete with those dastardly Chinese. Um, what did you what did you make of that? Well, I mean, that's uh, that's probably a, an effective line to use on some people, you know, on some senators, maybe. And um, 
I think senators are probably the, the, the main audience, intended audience for that kind of rhetoric. But I mean, not because Biden is uninterested in, in um, you know, uh, in uh, dealing firmly with the Chinese, uh, but I, I'm skeptical of the extent to which he actually thinks that the stuff in the infrastructure bill is going to play an important part in that. I mean, they may they may end up stuffing it full of other things that we haven't heard about that are more geared towards like national security um, considerations. Um, but you know, it's a, it is an indication that of a of a climate that's developing now. Um, it's familiar from from the back in the first Cold War days, because back then you also heard that kind of rhetoric from politicians whenever they wanted you to support something that they were um, peddling, they would say, this is good because it'll help us in the Cold War against the Soviets. And, and if you're starting to hear that kind of rhetoric about things like the infrastructure bill, and you're hearing it even from you know, Joe Biden and not from, let's say, you know, the, the most notorious uh, neocon type hawks like uh, you know, Marco Rubio or something, uh, it's an indication of how far along this uh, Cold War uh, mentality has has gotten. Um, it, I mean, what's interesting is that if you look at the at the, I mean, this is really a Trump era phenomenon that has become permanent. And you know, when Trump was running for president, the the um, you know the the, the uh, members of the people in the establishment who were horrified by what he was saying and, and by the prospect of him winning the election would say he's terrible because he's a nationalist uh, who is going to rip up the whole, you know, uh, rules-based order uh, that has um, created this, you know, Pacific uh, globalization that we're all benefiting from um, through his nasty rhetoric about China and his threats of tariffs on China. And then the interesting thing was that as soon as Trump actually started doing that stuff, um, it turned out that uh, the whole business world and much of the kind of establishment uh, foreign policy world, behind their earlier rhetoric of, you know, we should uh, try to keep China um, uh, in the, you know, within the tent of the international system um, engagement and all the rest of it. But behind that rhetoric, they had, I think, for a long time, um, been sort of, in a sense, kind of waiting for an opportunity to move towards a, a Cold War posture. And it was, of all people, Donald Trump. They're, you know, the, the guy who they thought they claimed was, uh, you know, a disaster who doesn't know anything about foreign policy, who gave them the permission structure to shift to an actual anti-China Cold War type position, which is what happened. So the, by the end of the Trump administration, you have Joe Biden and you know, much of both parties um, using rhetoric that four years ago was considered to be the rhetoric of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty incredible. Absolutely. Um, and those campaign ads, I mean, it didn't it didn't matter if it was a Trump campaign ad on China or a Biden campaign ad on China. They were very similar in messaging. Um, so you're right about that. Uh, Seth, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone go check out Seth's work. He's the executive editor over at Jacobin. And um, yeah, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Love Seth. All right. He's also got a sub stack, you know, which, you know, ooh. Uh, so yeah, he's got his own Substack. I always appreciate Seth's the precision of his analysis and the humility of his analysis in a way. Um, you know, he, he's he he's very careful and precise, and kind of very much can track um, the contours of the discourse over a, a, a slightly longer time frame 
than most of us who work in the news are because we're just kind of like, you know, like, and he said, it's like hard to remember what happened six months ago. It really is. Um, So when you have someone who can like remember now just what happened last week or six months ago or two years ago, three years, you know, can can, can track those changes um, over time. It always, it always, I find helpful. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that's what kind of sets this show and Jacobin programming overall, apart from what you're likely to find in even like left news spaces where, you know, like, you know, where you're constantly chasing what the news of the day is. And when you're doing that, it's really hard to look at um, history and long-term trends and kind of put everything in context. Um, So I love that about this show. And I love that about the guests we have on. Um, But Nando, we do talk about some of the stories of the day. Uh, So before we get to one of my favorite stories that you actually told us about, um, I just want to encourage everyone who's watching this live to send in your super chat questions. We're going to take a few of them uh, toward the end of the show. Now is the time to start putting your questions in and Kale, keep track of the super chat questions. No losing them. Okay. No losing. (laughs) So uh, no losing them. Especially when, especially when they're like, you know, Kale. You know, you put a, you put a super chat twenty dollars, fifty dollars. He's he's he loses it, folks. He loses he loses the super chat. Very bad, very bad, Kale. <laughs> Your Trump impression's so good. Anyway, um, and also you should like and share the stream. It's a really great way of supporting um, what we do here over at Jacobin. Help us grow the audience. Help us spread the message by liking and sharing the stream. Um, but with that said, uh, Nando, why don't we talk a little bit about what Amazon put out? Um, do you want to take it away? You want to explain it? Sure. I mean, well, you guys, I mean, I'm sure you guys have been following the, the, the unionization drive in Bessemer. And in the last week or so, the Amazon PR team has come out in full force. They were finally unleashed. You can tell they were like a caged animal who was just champing at the bit to really stick it to those guys who are doing fake news about Amazon. And one of the tweets that went super viral was a response to uh, Representative Mark Pokin. Pokin? I don't know how to pronounce his Pokin. 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 Whatever. Pokin. Mm-hmm. Um, who was criticizing Amazon for the fact that many of their workers um, are forced to pee in water bottles rather than be able to take a bathroom break and go to the bathroom. And Amazon's PR team responded to his tweet saying, you don't really believe the peeing in bottles thing, do you? Like, just like, <laughs> you know, just like a, a a teenager being obnoxious. And, um, of course, that just prompted hundreds and hundreds of people to come out and say, like, no, I'm an Amazon worker. I peed in bottles all the time. Ken Klippenstein then uh, published a scoop in which she showed, in which he showed that um, Amazon's executives knew about the peeing in bottles thing and were also... Um, punishing their workers for for doing that. Um, So then today, Amazon's PR team released a statement, and it's worth bringing it up. Bring it up, Kale, and we'll read some of it uh, because it's really great. Um, They they basically apologized for for the peeing in bottles thing. They said that the tweet was ill-conceived, and they called it a, quote, own goal, (laughs) <laughs> which I found a very funny term. And they said that if any, if any workers are forced to pee in bottle, that they should go and talk to their manager and that they will fix it immediately. Um, and let me add to great... that real quick. It's Yeah. yeah. Like I, I love that Ken Klippenstein's reporting um, has forced Amazon to put out this somewhat of an apology, but not really. Like this is obviously an attempt to, to clean up uh, their, their reputation and put out some positive PR, but 
every time they try to respond to something that they've been accused of, even if they come uh, out with something that's a little more conciliatory or whatever, uh, they still hurt themselves because at the end of the day, their workers are defecating in bags and, and urinating in bottles because they don't get enough time. Um, their workload is so overwhelming that they're not able to take enough of a break uh, to use the restroom. Uh, but in response to that accusation, not accusation, that in response to that um, statement about going to managers uh, to express things that maybe aren't so comfortable at the workplace, just understand that they've automated their managers. And I didn't mm. even know about this until uh, one of the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse workers uh, spoke to the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times has a podcast called The Daily. And uh, when I saw that they had uh, chosen Bessemer, Alabama as one of their topics, I'm like, oh, I'm real curious what they have to say about this. And I listened to it. And uh, one of the employees who um, you know spearheaded this unionization effort said that one of the biggest issues she has is that she can't get a live person when she wants to talk to management, that it's all automated, um, which also, I mean, just to tie everything in together, I mean, the untouchable PMC, you're not untouchable, right? I mean, this is just another example of that when they're like literally automating management. Um, and it sucks for the workers because they literally don't have someone to go to uh, to complain about these issues. And as we know, by the way, uh, Amazon is full of it. Uh, if employees do complain about issues, they end up getting punished for it. Amazon knew that their workers were defecating in bags and urinating in bottles. And uh, their response wasn't to lessen the workload. Their response was to literally punish workers or threaten to punish workers if they continued to do that. So this like, oh, my gosh, we didn't know. Get out of here. <laughs> like, it's not it's, it's not amazing. working. It's amazing. Yeah. All right. Well, should we take some super chats? Bring young. Yeah, Gail let's in? do it. Yeah, we have super chats. Um so let me, uh, I did Super not chats lose are any flowing. <laughs> Yeah. Let me start with this one. This one's fun. Uh, which miracle is more likely? One, a Middle Eastern socialist rising from the grave. Two, a giant socialist bunny distributing free candy. Or three, Biden supporting popular socialist policies that workers want and desperately need. Uh, any any uh, takers on one or two? <laughs> probably the bunny i think i think yeah, we're bunny. all going to experience the socialist bunny uh tomorrow giving out the free candy yeah well if the middle yeah. eastern socialist rose from the grave the cia would just drone bomb him so you know it wouldn't even matter it's true fair um there was a, a different question i wanted to pull up um from lee who said that the labor movement is not the current answer that anti-poverty mm. movements, anti-eviction movements, water protectors movements are available. Uh, it's not exactly a question, but... They're on the uh, menu. Yeah. Well, I have some thoughts, but I wanted to know if you guys wanted to respond to that. that that's kind of um, like... I mean, the, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead yeah. No, I mean, the only thing I would say is um, the reason why the labor movement is important is because the labor movement helps to actually accomplish all the other things that are listed there, right? Um, because again, for me, it's it's about it's about having an infrastructure in place to accomplish our goals, and we don't have that, right? So right now, all we're doing is relying on electoral politics. And we're relying on social media campaigns to apply pressure to lawmakers who aren't afraid of us because we're not organized. So 
The only thing I would say is the labor movement in and of itself isn't the goal. Like it, it, it's what follows that, that to me is important, right? So it's about putting an infrastructure in place to, to apply pressure effectively to accomplish what we need. Yeah, the, 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 the left that Lee describes in that statement, I guess, is, is very similar to the sort of modern left in Spain. Um, which really came out of the anti-eviction movement, especially a lot of these, uh, um, a lot of these left-wing mayors, especially Ada Colau in Barcelona, um, was an anti-eviction activist, um, and uh, you know, all those, all those efforts are worthy and and good, but the labor movement is what gives you staying power, sustainability, and the ability to strike at the heart of the system, um, which is profit generation. Um, that, that really is, is, that's really why the labor movement is the most effective tool, which is not to say that they, that, you know, anti-eviction movements aren't, aren't good and, and, and can, can achieve kind of short-term victories and things like that. But for long-term systemic, systemic change, the labor movement really is, is the key. Um, it's, it's what really, um, you know, it could, it could, it could achieve changes that last generations, whereas um, those other uh, movements tend to win victories that are um, sort of short-term emergency, um, kind of softening the blow of, of some awful thing that's about to happen. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with what both of you have said. Um, I want to, just to add a little more, because I think the question... Part of what she's saying is that it's not which is the most important or which is the most uh, efficacious. It's the what is available, and she's saying that the labor movement's not an available option. I would say, I mean, my first thought is just that uh, our analysis as people uh, who want to change the world, I think it's an, important for organizers and activists and um, people on the left to to try to have the most accurate. Uh, political analysis of the society that we live in um, and to, you know, we're not trying to be dogmatic. We are trying to be as scientific as possible. And so I think when we come down and say that the labor movement is what gives working people power, um, it's not dogmatic. It's not for a moral reason. It is like scientific in a, in a social sense because we understand looking at history that this is the means of getting what we want and so then we then have to then extrapolate from the analysis, how do we then apply this to our current moment? So Lee might be right that the labor movement is not like a rebuilding of the labor movement is not totally possible right now. I don't think that's necessarily true. I disagree. And I think that, uh, as Seth mentioned, um, we're in a somewhat dynamic moment that it's hard to tell where the trajectory of things in politics and in, in the economy broadly are, are moving right now. Um, but I also, and I, and I, I want to second what Nando and Anna have said that uh, the other alternatives that Lee laid out are really to be effective. They have to be understood as a part of a broader anti-capitalist thrust that uh, we do want to uh, re-enable and rebuild the labor movement for what we've said, for the reasons that we've said, uh, and so maybe these other means are, are something that can get us to that point, uh, or um, maybe not. But that's how we should be thinking that, um, you know, as, as Anna said, there are 
principles and there are goals that we have in mind, and then we find the correct means to get there. Uh, and just what we've learned from history is that the labor movement is the most effective means to advance working people's power uh, and, and interests. So until there's a better option, uh, that's that's what I'm. That's what we're stuck with. It's science, left. folks. <laughs> Bill Nye, the science. We believe guy in science. <laughs> we we believe in science on Jacobin. Um, there's um, uh, another question from Erica, who very mm. generously sends us a super chat and says, "Amazon has apologized for trolling. Do you think their tweets were good for the unionizing efforts in Alabama, or were they neutral or even bad? They were good. Definitely, I agree. Yeah, I agree. They were definitely good. I, I mean, for, they made him look scared, which is always good. You always want, you know, facing a confident enemy that is powerful and confident is always much harder. Facing a powerful enemy that seems rattled, you know, makes it makes it a little easier. And I think what happened was, you know, like what we talked about today, like the end result of the the Amazon trolling was um, an admission that their employees are reduced to awful things, uh, like not being able to use a restroom. Um, I think that it ended up exposing Amazon to people who maybe didn't know the extent to which employees are abused there. And that's, uh, you know, it's a good thing that people are more aware of that. And it's a good thing that in the end, it was Amazon that had to respond to Ken Klippenstein's reporting about what the reality is. Um, so I do see it as a positive. Uh, and I think that one of the best parts of this union, union drive is um, how it's inspired other workers across the country to start having these conversations. So this is huge. And, you know, I, I talked about that episode of The Daily, which is the New York Times podcast. You know, the employee that they spoke to from Bessemer said something that that, that stayed with me. She's like, Look, obviously, we want them to win. We want them to unionize. Uh, but she was asked if it if it doesn't work, are like, what are your thoughts? And she's like, I think we've already won because yeah. of what's happening across the country. And I think that's important to keep in mind. You know, people well, are waking up to to this. Not just that, but the people in in these campaigns over and over again talk about um, the experience itself is transformative for people the 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 it's 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 doing politics it's attaching yourself to a struggle that has been going on for centuries it's it it makes you feel like you're part of something uh worthwhile that you're not just you know at home watching netflix all day and feeling guilty about it that you're part of some grand struggle that is bigger than yourself um and that is a transformative experience um for many many people i mean it's just that that's that's what that's what it's about. That's what life's about. It gives you purpose. It gives you meaning. Um, and it changes your politics forever. Like it, it, it really does. So um, I can see how this this time and like the last couple of months uh, for these people in Bessemer, Alabama, in which they've really put Bessemer on the map, you know, the, through their through their courage. I mean, no one had heard of Bessemer before. Uh, no one in the country ever thought about Bessemer for, for half a second ever. Um, and now they are at the center at the center of probably the political struggle of the last I don't know a long 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 time, and that experience must be transformative and must feel incredible for the people on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I think that's totally right, and and I would only add that 
we have to remember that, you know, any any good general in a war would tell you that you're not going to win every battle. That we and, and that's not to be pessimistic. That I, I hope for the best in the. I hope for a good election results um, uh, that comes out of Bessemer in the near future, and uh, and and it's been incredible to see the amount of energy there's been to attempt to unionize in other uh, plants as well across the country, and so that's ultimately what's going to mean true success. That we want, obviously, we want the workers in Bessemer to get the union, but. For them to succeed beyond that, and for working people in America broadly to succeed beyond that, it's going to take uh, increasing uh, wins in unionization efforts uh, in Amazon. And part of that's just because of the the size of them, that they have so many different plants. And so the reality is that... Uh, They're fulfillment centers, Kale. <laughs> they don't make anything. I, I just mean like... In the crudest sense, it's just like a block of capital. It's just like a right. bunch of money that they have invested into a, a space in the world. And so, yes, it's a fulfillment center. But, um, but like they have, they have so many of these across the country and across the world that um, you know we should be uh, we should be supportive of every single one of these efforts, and also understand the long game that you know this is whether or not we win or lose this fight is not the the end of the story that we need to continue to push for this that uh, Amazon is going to be maybe the it's it's already one of history's greatest biggest villains that we're going to have to try to uh, tackle and take on and so it's it's just I guess it, the point is just we have to keep the long game in mind um, but I agree that that what has transpired over the last week with the, the social media has definitely probably been a big morale boost. You just reminded me of something that I wanted to quickly mention um, in response to that earlier question about, uh, you know, labor shouldn't be the immediate goal. Um, look, when it comes to anti-poverty measures, uh, when it comes to something like increasing the federal minimum wage, when you look to countries, and Nando and I talked about this, I think it was on the Young Turks, but when you look at uh, Scandinavian countries, they don't have uh, a mandated minimum wage because they have unions there and the unions negotiate uh, the wages on behalf of the workers. And so if you, you know, just do a comparative analysis, clearly they're doing much better uh, in Denmark, for instance, uh, than what we're experiencing in the United States uh, while just, you know, just sitting back and relying on electoral politics to do the work for us. Uh, clearly, it hasn't worked out. We haven't increased the federal minimum wage since 2009. Um, so that's I think that's a pretty good example of what you know we're trying to communicate in in what can be accomplished through organized labor. Right. I would just add, uh, I, I, I think that's right. Um, and there's a good, uh, there's a, there's an author named Matt Dimmick who's written both in Catalyst and Jacobin on this question of why, like, why do, uh, labor movements look different in different parts of the world? And, and, and to what extent, uh, has labor law been a part of that? Uh, and, uh, like Anna said, they don't have a minimum wage in the Nordic countries, um, and conservatives love to walk that, that little bit of information out. Um, but of course, it, it's been that they have both, uh, they've had a history of, of militant uh, union organizing and action. They've had a, a powerful social democratic party. Um, and 
some of it is also just kind of regionally historically contingent, but um, it's it's I think studying the Nordic countries is uh, probably one of the things that the left has to um, spend more time doing in the in the near future to try to understand how did they win those uh, fights and uh, to what extent you can read it in Socialist Manifesto by one Bhaskar Sunkara. Thank you, comrade. Uh, Premier, Vice Premier Bosker. <laughs> um, we wanted to follow up, and I'm just going to pull up her super chat. That of, of course uh, we uh, need a, a vibrant labor movement. Um, it's critical for systemic change. A look at pre New Deal actions were not labor. Um, other actions were the Veterans March uh, for pensions, uh, creating the tent city, um, and Jay McAlevey has spoken on this. Right, I think that's I call true. Fa- again, false dichotomy. False dichotomy. There were there were plenty of labor actions, and you know Eugene Debs existed uh, in the in the second half of the eighteen eighteen hundreds and the beginning of the nineteen hundreds. Um, Hyper focused on on labor militancy. Um, the the populist movement um, was essentially a, 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 a union a labor movement of farmers. Uh, so all those things. Uh, laid the groundworks uh, for the for the labor action that then led to the New Deal in the 1930s. Um, the Veterans March was important, uh, and and it, it did like very much shock the nation. But uh, there was there was no absence of labor action before before then. It was it was definitely available, so to speak. Right, and again, it just insofar as it's uh, efforts that are contributing to building working class power. I mean, that's the ultimate goal, right? So, again, mm-hmm. the labor movement is a means to that ends just as much as uh, what Nando's just laid out. That that's, that's where we have to strategically be oriented. Um, okay, uh, this is a longtime listener and first-time caller from a one, oh, Benjamin Burgess, asking me what are my plans for Wednesday because he <laughs> heard that Jacobin Show is taking a little break this week. Uh, and uh, for all of you guys who don't know, uh, this Wednesday is actually uh, Ben's birthday, and so Whoa. Uh, we're doing a happy birthday. Yeah, well, I'll say it to you a little bit later, but happy birthday, Ben! Uh, but a part of his show, he is uh, he does a movie series on Wednesday nights. Unfortunately, our shows kind of butt up against each other a little bit, but uh, and so myself and others are going to be doing uh, a high level dissection of. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. So, if you like The Shining, Kale pretends to know about movies. He gave me shit about the. You haven't watched the original (laughs) Godzilla and the original Japanese. If you haven't watched Japanese, you don't really know what Godzilla is about. You guys are crazy. You can't watch. You can't watch Godzilla versus. So there's another super chat um, that I want to pull up uh, from Matthew. Who asks, what are the options if they try to shut down the Bessemer facility? Has Biden appointed anyone? The only option they have is to watch the original Godzilla in Japanese. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, that's how they're going to, that's how they're going to win. I, I think that's, um, that's among the possibilities. <laughs> um, I, I mean, it's, I don't know. I just, I think it's, it's tough. I mean, I think what's, um, the what are the options? I mean, this we labor's at a structural disadvantage in these fights, so I think they could do that, and there's uh, a decently high percentage chance that they will. Um, so I, I think what we do is is we understand this fight as as something much larger and longer 
um, and that, uh, you know, it's not just a fight in Bessemer, and so that we are in solidarity with these workers in a much bigger fight, that it's not, we're not, you know, to the extent that we can, in fact, engage in this, we can't relegate ourselves to just being viewers of, of something else going on, that we have to understand ourselves as a part of it and try to figure out how do we continue this fight into the future. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to add one thing to uh, the Ben super chat because uh, Nando was on Ben's show. Was it last week yeah. or the week before? Everything's it was really this good. Week. So you guys should check that out. It was this week. It was week. on yeah. Wednesday. You guys should check that yeah. out. Mm -hmm. yeah. I was watching live while cooking, you know, got to support the homies. And it was a great episode. So everyone should check that out as well. Thank you. We love Ben Burgess. That's it. Enjoy his work. Uh, that's all we got, folks. I'm going to peace out. But uh, thanks, everyone. Thanks for watching. Hit like, hit subscribe, share us with your friends. You know, if, if they don't know about us, why don't they? That's on you now. So that's sorry. on you. It's on you. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to share us. <laughs> thanks, Kale. Uh, and thank you to everyone who's uh, watching. And uh, I don't really have much to add uh, to what Kale said. Um, thank you for your support. Uh, sharing and liking this video uh, will certainly help to get the message out there. But uh, make sure you're subscribed not only to this channel, uh, but that you have a subscription to Jacobin's Magazine. It's fantastic. Uh, don't just don't just settle for the digital version. You want to get that no. hard copy, okay? They're beautiful. They're yeah. beautiful. They really they are. They really are, each, yeah. Each individual magazine is kind of like a work of art. Like, you know, they'll be read by leftists hundreds of years from now because the, each one is just so special. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much for watching, guys. Um, happy Easter uh, and enjoy the rest of your weekends. We'll see you next weekend with another episode of Weekends. <laughs> see you guys.